Hi, everyone. My name is Mal Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. You can get more information about the Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter, which is at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC, and then all of our webinars can be found on the Knowledge Community YouTube channel, which is NASPA SLPKC. Uh, my guest today is a true star of the student leadership world, Dr. Wendy Wagner. Wendy completed her undergraduate work at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and her master's at Bowling Green. She also holds a Ph.D. in college student development from the University of Maryland. Wendy has previously held positions in service learning and leadership development in Maryland and served as the coordinator for the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and was a faculty member at George Mason University. She currently serves as a faculty member at George Washington University in the Human Services and Social Justice Program, and she's also the Honey W. Nashman Fellow for Faculty Development in GW's Nashman Center for Civic Engagement and Public Service. Finally, Wendy's practice and research um, have been at the intersection of leadership development and community engagement, and she has co-edited and contributed chapters to the books, The Handbook for Student Leadership Programs, Leadership for a Better World, Understanding the Social Change Model of Leadership Development, New Directions for Student Leadership, Leadership, and Service Learning. It's an incredible honor to have Wendy join me on the podcast. So welcome, Wendy. Hi. I'm uh, going to be honest. I'm pretty exhausted from that introduction. So uh, your, <laughs> your accomplishments have fully exhausted me. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to, before we get started with the rest of the program, just wanted to, uh, other than other than that introduction, get to know Wendy a little bit better. Um, so, Wendy, how did you get into leadership development? Well, I grew up in a really, a really rural area uh, in western Nebraska, eastern Wyoming area. Um, I did 4-H and I did Hobie and there were lots of other programs and activities for youth leadership development in that space. Um, I was also a really involved college student, so I was exposed to a lot of leadership workshops and leadership development programs there as well. So it just became part of what I was into. Okay, great, great. Did you go to uh, football games when you were at Nebraska? Did I go to football games? Of course, of course, every one of them. Do you have one of those corn hats? <laughs> if I did, I wouldn't tell you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are people embarrassed about having corn hats? Um, only when they leave, only when they leave. You wear it loud and proud in Lincoln, but gosh, you know, in Washington, D.C., it doesn't roll. <laughs> sure. I would love to have a corn hat that we're here in Washington. All right. I will write that down. I'll, I'll, I'll make a note next time I'm in town. <laughs> to yeah, a corn you, hat. Let, you let me know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So who is the best leader you know and why? You know, that is such a tough question for me. And I've, I've, been, I've been pondering it because people ask. And I think that that my take on leadership is so focused on the collaborative. I don't seem to naturally notice great individual leadership, but when I see a really incredible collaboration, I'm really taken by that. And so I think maybe that's, that's why I can't immediately think of some. I was thinking back, you know, you, thinking about growing up in western Nebraska and being a kid. I took a lot of dance lessons, and I loved it, but I never, ever wanted to be a soloist one day. I dreamed of being in a great ensemble cast, you know? And so now looking back on that, yes, of course, of course I'm more of a collaborative leadership person than an individual leadership person. Um, 
But when I see like groups working together and you can see like everybody here trusts each other, you know, they don't all have the same style, but they're, they're willing to bend to sort of let other people's style work and they'll listen to each other and they can disagree and that's okay. I just, I think that's amazing. And so that's what always stands out to me rather than any one individual leader I could think of. Great. Great. Yeah. I mean, I, they say, um, there's been sort of an interesting trend. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe that's not really a trend that's still going, but there's been sort of the rise of uh, the influence of improv and comedy. And improv is a very collaborative yes. process. And the people who come out of improv tend to lead healthier lives and be slightly more w- well-rounded folks than people who come traditionally. You know, stand-up has been the dominant form of comedy, and you know, and the uh-huh. biggest comedians in the world came through stand-up, but. Uh, it's kind of changed in the last few years. I mean, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey talk a lot about this in particular and about the sort of process. I mean, it's a very, um, it's a very sort of um, selfless process, uh, improv. So, uh, that, right. that kind I of hadn't heard, I hadn't heard about that. I love that. I'm going to have to go look that up. And um, I've had students do improv in my leadership courses before to get at some of that. You know, instead of preparing perfectly what it is that you want to say so that you're not listening to other people (laughs) because you're thinking about how you're going to word it when it's your turn to talk. Mm -hmm. Improv really makes you wait and listen to what other people do because your work has to build on theirs. So it's a really good, it's a good practice, I think, Mm -hmm. for leaders. Yeah, and there's some sort of like set of rules that's a part of the process where, you know, one Mm -hmm. of them is like, I I don't know enough of them, but one of them, like, I I remember hearing something about you always are trying to make the situation better for other people um, that Mm -hmm. uh, there's like... You're trying to set people up. mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh Uh-huh. So. Another one of the one of the rules that I love is that whatever the person before you says, instead of disagreeing or saying no, you say yes, and so you have to build on what they said. You mm-hmm. can't just take it in your own direction. You have to. It has to be something that's created together, which is sometimes it's really hard when people say wacky things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a kernel to. Maybe there's a great idea here that we're sitting on. Maybe I need to need to right. Re, I need to send an email right after this to the improv groups. Try to really corner the market here. So, um, okay, so what experience most informed how you think about yourself as a leader? Well, you know, I've always been really interested in personal identity and, like, the intersection of who, who you are and how the people around you have shaped who you are. And if, you know, had you made this choice and ended up in a different context, would you be a very different person? And that's something that even in high school and college I can look back and think about. I was just fascinated about how do you become the person that you are. So, and then also, again, being from that small community, I was always looking at my, my parents were really, really involved. They were involved in all the neighborhood associations and the community action groups and that sort of thing. And so I could see in this small town, like, who are the people who got really involved? You know, like if we were going to have a town celebration, they were the ones that made it happen. Who are, the, who are the people that feel a sense of responsibility for making this community a great place? How do they become, how do they get that way? Um, and how did they become good at making that happen, right? So I was always really interested in, in watching that and sort of understanding how that, how that works, partially, you know, for just sort of the interest in studying, but of course, sort of looking at yourself, you're sort of like, how can I become one of those people? So I think that sort of small town 
upbringing where I where you can know everyone well enough to be able to really look at well what makes what makes them tick why are they always running this stuff um, that got me really interested in a certain kind of leadership. Okay, great, great. So we're going to transition now to a, sort of a, a more general conversation about leadership and about your work. So uh, it's a big year in the in the student leadership world. It's the 20th anniversary of the social change model. Uh, you've edited a book on the subject. You contributed mm-hmm. a book to that chapter called Why Social Change. Uh, so mm-hmm. for those who don't know or aren't convinced, why social change is the dominant model for student leadership programs 20 years in? Well, for me, I can think of, Two key pieces. There's probably a lot of influences here, but I, the, the pieces that I think of is, first of all, the social change model is a relatively simple framework, so it's easy for students to remember. There's three overarching values. You look at the development of the individual, the development of the group, being able to be effective as a group, and the development of the community. And there are three Cs under each of those overarching categories that are They all start with C. They're pretty easy to remember. But even though it's a really simple framework, it's easy to understand, it's easy to grasp, each individual C of the model represents really complex learning goals. Like any of those Cs is a, you know, that's something that you can work your whole life on continuing to be better at. And and when you work on one C, of course, that influences other Cs. You know, the more that you have a deeper consciousness of self, that that improves your ability to collaborate with others. So, you know, they all intersect. So it's something that it's, it's easy to understand, but it's something that you can take with you. And as you continue to have experiences, you can use those lenses to make sense of all of those experiences. So to me, that's, that's part of why it's a great model for college students because it can kind of guide the learning that they're doing on their own out in student organizations and in the community. It's not something that you sort of memorize in the classroom and then leave behind. But the other piece that I think that makes it one that's really caught on is because when the the leadership paradigm shifted in the 90s, when we stopped looking at leadership as what is this one leader doing, and instead we started looking at the whole leadership process and everybody on the team, what is, what is this whole team doing that's making it work? The social change model was the first model that emerged during that time that was for college students. So we had all these models that are helpful for that framework, but they're, the language is, you know, it's CEOs talking that are trying to increase sales, you know, or it's, you know, it, we're, we're, the bottom line is profits in the end. And so the examples don't really resonate. And the, maybe the lessons you can translate um, but for college students whose goals are much more about, you know, I'm in a student organization, I'm trying to make it better, we're trying to make a change on our campus, or we're, you know, we're doing community service in our community and we're trying to address food security or homelessness, the, the models and the examples in the books and the readings that we had before the social change model came along were just, it was hard to translate to those goals. So I think it's, it's a, a bit of both of those things. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think a couple of things that sort of in my experience with the model that I've I found to be particularly uh, 
you know, particularly just from my, you know, sort of layman's understanding is that I think that I think the memorability of it really matters. You know, I think that a lot of models that, uh, you know, I think being able to, the, the point of being able to take it out of the classroom or out of the seminar and really be able to, and really be able to take it uh, and, you know, and remember portions of it and then apply it in the real world, I think is absolutely true. And then I think the, the, convicting nature of social change has really got, it, it really has a, has a lot to do with that as well. I think that it's in some ways a cure to, you know, some of what ails leadership as a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, but it is, it does, it, there are a lot of uh, studies of leadership that don't ever ask, what are we doing it for? <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. we're going to learn to be leaders, but what are we going to do with that? And that's true. It does at least help make the big picture sort of make sense. Like, why are we doing all of this in the first place? And and that it's, I mean, it's a lofty goal, but it's it's worth pursuing. I do. I can think when you said sort of the, the the fact that it's easy to remember. I can think of lots of examples of students having some experience out in the community. I I do a lot of service learning, and they'll come back and and you know when you have that common language the reflection is, is can go so much deeper so much more quickly. You know, you can you can they can start seeing an example of something they saw in the community and everybody in the room can just look at each other and say, Congruence, right? Yeah, right <laughs> you know. So it's it's just having a, a common language that we all have with one another so that we can we can make sense of these concepts without having to sort of articulate the the idea fresh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, my next question uh, involves uh, uh, a colleague of yours. So Susan Comavez is a legend in, in the student affairs mm-hmm. work, uh, world, and, and you uh, have worked very closely with her on several of those books that we talked about. Um, why do you think she's been able to contribute so significantly to the field of leadership studies? Oh, yeah. Susan, Susan has come to be a really, truly dear friend. She has seen me through most of my really significant life moments, you know, all my kids and <laughs> relationship issues. Like she is a, she was my professor and my advisor and a colleague, but she's also a very dear friend. Um, here's the thing I'll say about Susan. She sees the future. <laughs> that, is, that is why she has um, contributed so much. And I'll tell you our first bonding moment, the first time I met Susan and I already, I, you know, I already knew who she was, but we were at this leadership symposium and we were at a dinner <laughs> at the at the end of the symposium, and we got to talking about Star Trek. <laughs> so I was leaves it like so we're both into sci-fi, and she just everything she sees, she leaps forward to the future about what this will mean. Um, but you know, you and I will read something in the, in the news, and we'll think, oh, that's that's interesting, you know. But Susan will read exactly the same thing, and immediately she'll be talking about what this will mean for how we'll be teaching leadership in the future. You know, I'm, I remember being early, early on in my doctoral program um, when men and women were starting to get called to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, it's still the Bush administration, and, and, and this was happening. And Susan was telling all of us, we need to start thinking now. All of these men and women are going to come back, and they're going to go to college, and they're going to have had significant leadership experience in a really high-pressure context, and we're going to need to be ready to weave in their examples in a way that's relevant <laughs> to the leadership models that we're, that we're teaching. And we're going to need, be need to, needing to be prepared for our leadership studies and our models to perhaps shift a bit 
given the experience they're going to come back with. They're going to know a lot we don't, you know. So, and now you can kind of look around and it's, it's getting, fortunately, it's getting to be commonplace on most campuses for there to be at least one staff member that's in charge of creating programs and having support services for veterans that are returning. Um, but Susan called that 20 years ago, right? Like, she's just like, um, she, she sees something and then she immediately knows what that will mean. Five years from now, here's what we're going to be doing differently. Like, she can call it every time. Wow. I would love to be able to see the future. That would, that would, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I'm quite, you know, quite ready for that, but... Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Um, so this podcast, generally speaking, aims to further the field, uh, further the conversation in the field of leadership, and you're certainly an authority on that field. So who do you think people who are listening to this podcast should be reading in order to best understand the field? Um, in order to best understand the field, you know, this is such a tough one because I, I teach leadership courses, and I'm never able to just pick a book. You know, <laughs> sort of like, I want you to read three chapters from this book and two chapters from that book and then four chapters from this book. So in order to understand the field, you know, the, the handbook for leadership program, um, that is a, it really is a great overview. It talks about not just the theories and the research that's sort of underpinning the work right now, but it also gets into practicalities like funding the program and, and looking at curricular options and co-curricular options. So that's, that's a really good overview of the field, I think. Um, for me, I, I also, I've, it's really important to me that as we're doing leadership development, partially for me, I have a very personal development, student development lens on leadership. But to me, it's also really important that we read outside of the discipline, you know, that we're not just reading leadership studies or leadership mm-hmm. quarterly, but that we're, we're looking at who else is talking about this stuff. Um, but the last book that I read that shifted what I was doing in the classroom was actually by Brene Brown. She's a sociologist, and she's actually writing a lot of pop press books right now. But um, her last book, Rising Strong, is about her study of resilience and how people bounce back after really, really huge, bad failure. And she has some chapters in there that describe reflection on experience better than anything I've ever seen. And I've, you know, I've been doing service learning work for 15 or 20 years, so I've read a lot on reflection. Um, but she, she does a really great job of describing, you know, like here's this horrible thing that happened to you. Here are the ways to start thinking about what happened. What does this mean for me? How do I interpret, you know, how do I understand how I interpret the world and how do I understand what I need to do next? Um, in really, really great ways. And so I was reading it for, like, not for work. I was just kind of reading it for myself. And I ended up, you know, shifting a little bit of my leadership class based on this book and having some stu- having students read a couple of chapters. So, um, so yeah, I think, it, I mean, it's important for us to be grounded in our, you know, in the work of our field. But I think it's equally important for us to be reading other things that we can weave into it. Great. So you and I both work here at George Washington University, and you teach mm-hmm. a course on leadership. And I recently shared with a, a student who uh, who works in my office and who recently took your course uh, that uh, that you were Uh-oh. going to come on the podcast. <laughs> and, uh, and she 
physically jumped out of her chair. She was so excited. Uh, oh, so excited. So uh, something must be working in your course. So uh, <laughs> what advice can you provide for creating a worthwhile leadership course? Um, you know, um, I don't know if you know Ken Bain, but he writes about teaching college students. And he, he says something that I just love about teaching. He said, when people ask me, what do you teach? He says, I teach students. <laughs> And that resonates with me so much because I've, I've taught a variety of topics in, since I've started as a faculty member. But the, the nature of the – I've been surprised at how little the nature, the feel of my course changes, whether I'm teaching an undergraduate research course or if I'm teaching leadership or intro to social justice, like, you know, widely different topics. But the course itself is, is what matters, you know, like really building a community of learners. You know, you can't just share subject matter to bodies in seats, you know. Like I, you need to know, like, who are they? You know, what are they into? Where are they from? What are they seeing? What do they want to do someday? You know, the, the examples that we talk about in class need to be their examples. Um, and so just building a classroom where we all – really know each other and students, you know, it become trying to make it a place where everybody is comfortable really sharing things. I think particularly for a leadership class, it's important. You know, we, we do a lot of diving into, you know, a topic like, like being able to handle controversy and actually create an organization where people feel comfortable disagreeing with each other. We'll, you know, we'll get really real. I mean, like in the, in the project groups you have for your group project assignment, like talk, circle up and talk about a time when you wanted to disagree and you didn't say anything. Why didn't you say anything, right? Like, and students need to trust each other in order to be really real about, you know, I was intimidated by you or, you know, or maybe there's one, like I couldn't get a word in, in edgewise because there's always two people dominating our conversations. You know, like to get to a space where you can be real and share that stuff that's super important for learning to be a better leader, for somebody to tell you, stop talking. Other people need to get a word in edgewise. Like, you need to have a certain level of relationship with each other. So it's just really, really important to create that space where students get to know each other, and I know them, and I know what they're into, so I can pull examples that will resonate with who they are. Um, so that's the that's the thing that's important to me is I that I know my students and and that they know each other so that we create this community. Okay, great. So, uh, leadership is a concept that's a little vague to some. Uh, how did this happen? Yeah. And, and <laughs> what do you think we can do to ensure that leadership remains transformational and authentic as much as possible? Yeah, it's one of those words that just sort of and most of the time, and unequiv- people think of it as just it's a good word, right? So anything good happens, people want to say, oh, it's leadership, you know? So, like, if, if, if it's any good thing, then it ceases to be anything. It's not a word that's something. Um, I think it's the, the vagueness of leadership, it kind of happens at two levels. Like, there's the, there's the level of the general public using the word leadership in ways that we don't necessarily use it in leadership studies. That kind of makes it problematic. So that when we're trying to pull students into a leadership course, a they don't want to take it because they they think it means something that they're not into, 
or B, they show up for the leadership course and they think they have, their expectations are very different from what we intend to be talking about. So there's that piece. But the levels, even within academia, when we talk about leadership, it crosses or it's important to so many different disciplines. And depending on your discipline, you're going to think about leadership and you're going to define it differently. You know, the, if you're in political science, they do a lot of study about leadership, but that's most talking about how does a person come to power, right? How do you get the position? Um, and business management people are talking about how do you get results? That's what leadership is. Um, and psychology and sociology, it, it looks at how do leaders manage to motivate other people? How do they get into their heads and um, get them to join their cause? It, so it's, and all of those things are important, and all of them are right, <laughs> and all of them are leadership. So if we're going to use this word, it is a word that, me, is, that means something different to different people, which is fine if we all have that awareness. But I think right now academia is so siloed that we're using this word without a lot of conscious awareness of how other people at our institution are using the same word. So I think that a big reason that it's vague is because we're not doing a very good job of intersecting our work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Um, so not that long ago, you were, uh, you were, uh, an up and coming leadership academic and you were, you know, pursuing your PhD. And now, uh, you know, I, and many of the people who will end up listening to this podcast own books with your name on the front. So, uh, what advice would you give to, to aspiring, uh, leadership academics? Um, I think I would, what just kind of continuing, um, the thoughts about, leadership being across these disciplines, I do think that where we need to go next is to understand that and to intersect that a little better. Um, so I would say for, for folks that are sort of coming up into it now, they're going to be the, the leading leadership folks in the next 10 or 15 years, is to, to cross disciplines in terms of what you're reading and what you're studying and, and to be that person who can you know, stand in a lot of different disciplines or academic departments at your institution and, and can know how to roll with their language. A lot of us are saying exactly the same things, but we use different words. So being that person that can say, yes, absolutely, all these things you're saying, yep, and then go to a different discipline and say, yep, and be able to use all of their terms. And to be the person that can draw all of those threads together for leadership studies, to, to show the leadership studies people, here's where all of these things are aligning, and here's how we can make use of the scholarship in a lot of different disciplines to better inform what it is we're trying to study. Um, and I know that, that when leadership studies was forming, it was really, really important for us to be a field. Um, so they, they tried really hard to, to demonstrate how we are distinctive from other studies. But I think what we need to do now is is do more to show how we're connected to a lot of other disciplines. So I would love to see the next folks coming up and be the ones that are doing that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point about sort of about how leadership itself sort of, you know, ended up sort of in a leadership as an academic concept ended up in a silo. Uh, and mm -hmm. even though it like it clear, you know, as you've, have you, as you've conveyed, uh, it's clear that leadership stretches in so many different directions and is so applicable and, you know, can be really meaningful in so many different ways. It's really a great point. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, what publications are coming from you that we should be looking for? Well, I'm super excited. Leadership for a Better World has a second edition coming out in December. Wow, that's um, exciting. And yeah, and I'm so happy with it. I'm so happy with it. We've added um, a beginning and an ending chapter that were actually written by original members of the ensemble that created the social change model. Mm. Um, and that sort of those those sort of bookended chapters add a lot to the book itself. Um, and then, you know, the material in, in all of the chapters has been um, improved and fresh new examples and sort of looking at, you know, particularly for, for leadership that's focused on making a difference in our communities and in the world, there, a lot has happened <laughs> since the first book came out. So drawing from examples that are, that are happening today, things in the news, things on campus, we've also... Um, gone to a lot of effort to gather stories from college students across the country that are doing great work. So those stories are woven throughout every single chapter of the student that did this on their campus and the student that did that on their campus that really helps bring ideas that are, you know, maybe just sort of it, philosophical or academic ideas and helps you show like, no, this isn't, this isn't idealistic. This is this happens on campus, so we can tell you stories. So I love that part of it, too. Great, great. Well, that's really exciting. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm thrilled. I, I had that book on my desk the other day, and one of my colleagues said, oh, my gosh, I love that. I just taught a seminar on that, and I was uh, <laughs> happy, happy to brag about you coming on the podcast. So, um, so now we're going to transition to a regular segment called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask an arbitrary question, a silly question about oh, okay. leadership. And uh, we're going to limit Wendy to 30-second responses. So, uh, oh, I'm 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 much too I'm much too wordy for that. <laughs> oh, you don't think you can do it? Yeah, and I'm honestly right, not assertive seconds. enough to be like the kind of person who would you know call time. So, uh, <laughs> um, all right, I'll do my best. Do my okay, best. all right. So, if you could choose one fictional leader to guide you through life, who would you pick and why? A fictional leader. Um, Oh, my head's in sci-fi because we were talking about Susan. I'm going to choose Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Do you have, um, a, uh, do you um, have a preferred doctor? Um, it's so hard. I, I loved David Tennant, and, and when David Tennant left, I was never going to love anybody else, and I loved Matt Smith. <laughs> mm. So I think I'm learning to just keep an open mind there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so why Doctor Who? Why? Um. So in terms of guiding me through life, there's so much wisdom there, right? Like hundreds of years of wisdom, but he never takes himself too seriously either, right? Like just because, just because we're super smart doesn't mean we can't just sort of like go with it. And he's very spontaneous, very go with the flow, um, and, and can see the humor in things. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would not be a bad way to go through life. Yeah, no, that sounds okay. Uh, so <laughs> what do you think is the best book about leadership? And I suppose I would, you know, uh, clarify, I don't normally have to say this, but I, I suppose that you have not written. So what is the best <laughs> book that you have not written about leadership? I don't know. I, I don't think I'd put mine in that, in, in that category. The best book. Um, oh, I, I love, I still love Ron Heifetz stuff. I love, I love, the the concept of adaptive leadership. So anything he's written, I love. 
Um, there was, there's an older book now. I wish they would do another one by Ren that's actually um, sort of very, very short excerpts that has um, lots and lots of ideas from leadership across the board, like even starting out on talking about the Greeks and um, ancient China and you know, leadership thoughts from, from lots of different periods of time, but then getting into current sort of theorists. I love that book, but it's it's getting older. It needs an update. Somebody okay. should update that. You should update that. You Me? should do that. Yeah. Oh no, this is this is my purview. Talking is is really this is it for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you mentioned uh, so uh, in our pre uh, podcast conversation, you mentioned a pet peeve mm-hmm. in our conversation about leadership. So can you share why you can't watch Project Runway and Top, Top Chef? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so when I was in grad school, John Dugan and Julie Owen and I used to have a standing TV night watching, and we would, it would most of the time it was Project Runway, but sometimes it was Top Chef, and we would dissect every character's motives and their plans and predict what was going to work. That strategy is not going to work. We'd shout at the TV. It was so fun, and I just I can't do it anymore because when they, whenever they have team challenges, the way they talk about leadership just makes me want to throw something at my television because it's always like if there was a failure, ultimately it was the leader's failure, right? Like even if everybody could see, well, this one person on the team just didn't pull through. Well, they blame the leader for that team member not pulling through. It's just, it just grates against my, you know, like if you're an ensemble, you're an ensemble, right? Like my way of looking at leadership is not this – the, expecting the leader to be in control of everything, you know? And, ugh, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> and Ned used to love those shows. Oh, that's a real, that's a real shame. Um, <laughs> do you watch them? Do you still watch them? Um, I've only gone through a couple of seasons of Top Chef, but we watch a fair amount of Project Runway in my house, which uh, my wife, right, who, you know, right. is, is German, so this is not being insensitive and making fun of Heidi Klum. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, almost, we almost exclusively refer answer. to it as Project One Way, so, uh, <laughs> because that's how Heidi says it, you know. So, uh, so that's one of, the, one of the highlights for me. But she's actually, started, uh, right. she's actually started watching it without me now, so... I don't know. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if I was ruining it with commentary. Yeah, that's a a very generous take on it. So, uh, okay, so now for our final segment. Uh, So this is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from higher education, current events, and one lie, and Wendy's going to have to try to parse out that lie. So the theme this week is West Coast Oddities. West Coast. Everything about the West Coast is odd. That's what makes it awesome. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. these, these would be uh, exceptionally odd, I would say. <laughs> okay. So, um, okay, so your first option is a video tour of Pepperdine University's Seaver College recently went viral after the RA giving the tour tripped through a sliding glass door, and the video was subsequently released on accident. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so that is okay. So that's one option. Uh, the next option is a recent graduate of the University of San Francisco was born in a laundry room on campus. So that would be, you know, something like 22 years ago, this person was born in a laundry room wow. on the University of San Francisco's campus. So okay. that is another option. 
And then the last option is a professor at BYU who traditionally has done a demonstration of having students, unbeknownst to them, drink what they believe to be real urine but is actually fake urine, will stop the practice following student complaints. So those are your three options. Uh, we have oh video tour, laundry room birth, or fake urine. Those are your three options. Um, huh. Okay. I'm totally buying the student giving a tour. I was a, I was a tour guide when I was an undergraduate, and all that walking backwards, you get good at it, but, you know, sliding glass door, that, that could totally happen. Sure. When the, you did that, did, oh, you wear the, did you wear the corn hat, or, or is that not a part of the tour? <laughs> I wore a whole lot of red, so much red, <laughs> so much red. You know, when you're a student at the University of Nebraska, you know, when you're, when you're sorting out your laundry to, like, do it all, you've got a red load. And I've just, I'm going to go ahead and I have, I've not done a poll, but I'm 100% certain that, that every student at the University of Nebraska has a red load every, every week. Mm. Yeah, um, it feels like a very important place for separating your whites and your, col- and your colors. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But it, you don't even need a load for colors. You need a load for reds. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, that the one about drinking the fake urine is a lie, because I just feel like IRB would get in on that. Like, you can't do that. Mm. Uh, no? So, uh, so that one is true. Um, <gasps> so oh, my God. A, so it was an in-class demonstration. It was not a, uh, it was not a, you know, some sort of research. Um, so that, that one is All true. Right. Uh, the University of San Francisco story is also true. Um, so that student was uh, born in a laundry room on campus, and she did recently graduate. Um, the one that is not true, I got you, was the you uh, totally RA, got me. RA giving the tour. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Pepperdine University Seaver College is a real place, too. So I, had, I uh, really checked that one out. Okay, so you, like, you, you, you really pulled off a good one. So really, like, I feel like somewhere someone has been given a college tour and fallen through a glass door. That's happened somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I would I'm gonna have I would, to go look it up now. <laughs> yeah, I would have to imagine that. I mean, I, th- I feel like you can probably find some sort of campus tour guide tripping if you did a YouTube search. I, I didn't I didn't do that, but uh, I, I right, imagine that's right. out there. So the new thing with college <laughs> tours actually is uh, is to give tours via Periscope. So you do them during real time so people can ask questions. Um, and I guess maybe Facebook Live now too. Um, but that's uh, but that's sort of the new trend in, uh, in the campus tour game. Wow, seriously? Mm-hmm. That's Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think MIT was kind of the, the first campus to really get rolling with those Periscope campus tours. So. Cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love so, it. All right. Well, that is, uh, so that is all that we have. Um, thanks to everyone for joining and listening to the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks to Win- Wendy for joining me here today. It was really, truly an honor to have the privilege of speaking with you. So. Thank you for the invitation. It was so fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Wendy can be reached on LinkedIn, and she can also uh, be uh, contacted on Twitter. And her Twitter handle is at Dr. Like Dr. Wags DC. So that's how uh, that's how you can reach Wendy. And you can get more information about the knowledge community on again on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is Facebook.com/backslash/salead. Twitter at at NASPA/SLPKC on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC, and all of our webinars can be found 
found on the Knowledge Community YouTube channel, which is NASPA, S-L-P-K-C. And you can submit questions to be answered on the next podcast if you're interested on naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.